Nick at Night is a production of Council Communications. good thing there is no camera in the studio because when that theme music starts to roll i just start dancing all over the place welcome to the nick at night show folks we have a really interesting show for you tonight um on the line i'll bring him on in a minute we have craig uh, delisandria uh he is a strategist and a political activist who has been very much involved in laying the foundation for a new conservative political party he joins us this evening and in studio is mike shelby he is a uh, commentator at large, I guess is the best way to describe Mike. So we'll get to both of those gentlemen in just a moment. I would just want to get some logistics out of the way. The number is 343-700-4390-844-562-4766. Uh, those are the numbers you can reach us at. You can also send me an email to nick at night at latenightcouncil.com. And you can send me a note on Facebook. If you're a member of my uh, Nick at Nights group, you can send me a, a message. If you want to become one, send me a, a friendship request. In other words, any way you can think of to communicate is certainly open. We're willing to take calls and all that stuff. All right. First of all, let me welcome Craig. Welcome to the show, Craig. How are you, Nick? Good to talk with you tonight. If I was any better, I would be out under the apple tree looking for the bent penny. <laughs> Someday I'll figure out whether that's good or bad. Good but for now... Uh, oh, yeah, that's – there we go. That's better. Little logistical adjustment. Okay. So um, I thought I'd bring you in this evening and uh, talk to you about this um, – the as-yet-unnamed uh, political party that uh, you've been int intricately involved in laying the foundation for and find out what's going on, what's it all about, how's it going to work, what makes it different than the other political parties. In other words – Basically, take a neophyte view of this without it, and uh, assume I don't know the first thing about it, and we'll talk about it, and why people should, if, if you are someone who is, a, is of a conservative bent and cares about the issues that the mainstream parties have thrown away and, you know, you know basically abandoned us on, uh, it's a home for them. So let's start, first of all, uh, maybe if I give us a little bit of your personal history, uh, how you got involved in politics, you know, those kinds of things, and a little snapshot of who you are, and then we'll take it from there. Sure. Well, I've been a conservative activist for since the 1993 federal election. So I've been a reformer. I've been an alliance supporter. Provincially, I've been a progressive conservative. I live in the riding of uh, Mike Harris, represented, uh, represented for over two decades. So 
I've been around the conservative block uh, quite a bit. And uh, my latest uh, work with the conservatives was I was an executive assistant for an MPP. And um, so, you know, I've uh, paid my dues, as it were, and I've uh, donated and I've volunteered and I've coordinated and I've organized. And I've grown disappointed, to put it mildly, in in, in the parties both federally and provincially. Though I think tonight we're just going to focus on the provincial. Right. But, you know, after, after pouring uh, blood, sweat, and tears into the conservative movement for more than 20 years, um, and then sort of not seeing it pay off when, uh, for instance, Stephen Harper was prime minister for 10 years, you know, here was a guy who was a policy director for the Reform Party, he was head of the National Citizens Coalition. Um, liberals were tarring him with uh, the brush of, a, of being a, a man with a hidden agenda, an extremist. You know, he ran as a conservative. He was elected as a conservative. And, and he couldn't balance the budget seven years out of ten. You know, sure, he told us he wasn't going to do anything on the social conservative front. He understood his reasoning. But here, you know, he was an economist. We expected him to at least give us conservative fiscal policies. Well, he balanced the budget the first year because Paul Martin handed him a balanced budget. And he balanced it the second year. And for seven years after that, he gave us deficits. And this was, this was really a, a turning point for me because I thought, here's a guy who I believe is a conservative in his heart. He wants to do... The right thing you know he wrote about putting a firewall around alberta for crying out loud he was a committed conservative he gets elected with a majority government and doesn't seem to deliver on it what's what's the problem here and then provincially you know we've got patrick brown i think patrick's name's going to come up a lot tonight and <laughs> he, could be he right. ran he ran he was you know a social conservative even uh, when he was an mp he ran for the leadership and won the leadership as a social conservative and quickly threw social conservatives under the bus. And then he talked about a carbon tax. Uh, he marched in the pride parade. So here's another guy who maybe he's not as conservative internally as Stephen Harper was, but he certainly ran as conservative. But why, what is it that draws these, these politicians to to the center or to the left, you know, why can't they follow through on what they're telling their, their supporters and why are conservatives, fiscal and social conservatives, why are we always disappointed in our leaders? And, and when I say always, I don't mean every time because Mike Harris was not the great disappointment that almost every other Tory leader is, but what is it about these guys? I, I don't believe that they're all, um, you know, telling us one thing, knowing that they're going to do something else. I think there's something bigger that's, that's causing this problem. And that's what sort of led to this idea of a new party. All right, because there are a lot, um, of other, uh, a lot of other parties out there. Let's talk about first, before we get into the nuts and bolts of the party, um, why, uh, because I agree with you, I, I can't agree with you more uh, about feeling abandoned by... Uh, for the most part, because the main the, look, the the NDP and the Liberals were never a home for social conservatives. Let's face it, 
or for people who are, right. you wouldn't even have to say social conservatives, just, you know, people who are of a right-leaning tendency. There had never been a home for them, so there's no point even talking about them. But the, the, the PC Party of Ontario has been the traditional home for people who lean to the right. And we've been abandoned more than once, and this time resoundingly. So let me first ask right. you, uh, how much damage do you think um, that Patrick Bound has done by abandoning such a large wedge of his base to his chances well, in, of governance, I guess? I, yeah. So I think Patrick Brown is the best thing to happen to conservatism in Ontario because he has so alienated a large part of his base that and he's done it with such vigor that I think he's energizing social conservatives, common sense conservatives to do something about this problem. So he's awakened so the sleeping giant. He's awakened the giant, and I think that's a good thing. I, you know, I don't know if Patrick Brown is a conservative or a liberal. I don't know if he's a if he's on our side, if he's not on our side. The the problem isn't. Patrick Brown. The problem isn't the leader, because even if we had a terrific leader, the next guy, it's gonna, it's just gonna revert to the mean. We're gonna have the same problem in four years or eight years again, because it's, it's something else. And I think what the problem is, is it's the NDP. And here's what I mean: the NDP, they've been around for what, 56, 55, 56 years now. Yeah. They, they have no expectation of winning an election. Federally, they've never won. Provincially, they, they fell into it once. So why do they keep going? Why do they keep doing what they're doing? You know, they, any reasonable NDP member has to realize they're not going to win. Well, they're not going to win elections, but they win the argument. They're out there, and they're fighting for what they believe in. And at some point... What they believe in gets enough support that it begins to threaten liberal seats. And so then liberals have to pay attention to what NDP uh, people are saying. Because if they don't start to, to appeal to NDP voters, they start to lose marginal seats on their left. So the NDP, though they don't win elections, they, they have great influence because the liberals do win elections. And the liberals have to start appealing to some NDP voters on some issues, or they don't win elections. When the liberals move to the left, then the conservatives are drawn to the left. The conservatives say, well, we gotta, we've got to win by sucking some support out of the center. And if everybody in the center is talking about something that the NDP is talking about, pretty soon the conservatives are talking about it too. But the conservatives don't have to talk about anything to their right because they have a lock on that vote. They can take us for granted, and they've been doing it. And I think Patrick Brown's doing it. He thinks he can get away with not not even giving lip service to social and fiscal conservatives because he doesn't have to. Where are they going to go? Well, he's about. So to I think we need to respond to that. Yeah, I think you're right. I think he's about to find out a very nasty lesson that you know the days of taking thirty uh, percent of his base for granted uh, is a very dangerous move and one that's going to come back and bite him. All right, so let's let's um, talk a little bit about um, where I, I want to say that we know what the genesis was. So let, let's talk about the formation of of this party. What is it? How is it that this party is going to be 
um, different because let's face it, if we if we become just and when I say we, I'm talking about the new as yet unnamed party. We don't even have a timeline yet about when this will come into existence, but I have a feeling it'll be much sooner rather than than much later. I'm hoping that it'll be in plenty of no, plenty of time, but in time for the next election. Um, we really can't afford to go another, and this we repeat this mantra every election, but we really, in this case, cannot afford four more years of progressive policies. So uh, what, how is this going to appeal to the more right-wing voter in a way that actually rings with them so that they're willing to you know, put their not only their vote where their, their uh, heart is, but uh, put their money where their, where their, uh, where their vote is? Sure. Well, I think any new party needs to distinguish itself from the three mainline parties in one particular uh, aspect. It needs to not worry about appealing to everybody. We really need, a new party needs to stake out that ground that nobody's appealing to now. And that's pretty substantial ground. You know, why, why target a market that three or four parties are already targeting sure maybe maybe that's the path to winning government but is that the path to influencing government and i don't think it is i think a new party needs to stake out those people on the right who have no political home so for example um so the easy one that always comes to mind of course is pro-life the pro-life voter right so we live in a you know, this is more a federal issue, but as an illustration. So we live in a country where there's no abortion law, right? You can have abortion at any point. There's no law against it. This is a, this is a, uh, a position that very few Canadians actually support. Yes, the majority of Canadians are not pro-life, but the, the vast majority of Canadians approve of some restriction on abortion. No mainstream political party will talk about this, but there is a market of voters right there who have nobody appealing to them. So to put it in a provincial context, we, we need to attract that voter, whether it's through policies that, that uh, um, address the issue of abortion or other cultural uh, issues, issues that people would uh, relate to a Judeo-Christian uh, heritage. You know, that's, you know, that's 20% of the voters that are being ignored on that ground. On some fiscal issues, nobody talks about privatization of health care. This is, this is the third rail of death in, in, in provincial politics mm -hmm. um, to raise this issue because, what, 75, 80% of the population doesn't understand this issue and doesn't want to talk about it. You know, we're Canada and Ontario, we're, we're one of three countries on the planet that don't allow you some measure of buying your own health care, you know, us, North Korea, and Cuba. So what's, what's the uh, political risk to appealing to those people who have an interest in private health care? Well, Patrick Brown's never going to talk about it, and the Liberals and the, uh, the Democrats uh, are ideologically opposed to it. So there's another element of the populace that, so if that, it that is shut out of debate. So if I understand you correctly, you're saying rather than run from contentious, run away from contentious issues, at least talk about them, at least bring them into the conversation, because by doing so, you'll attract a whole, like 50% of the population doesn't vote. 
And that part of that is because they're they're sick and tired of politics the way it's done. That's there's a certain amount of truth to that. Others say, uh, who am I going to vote for? Nobody represents my worldview. And there's another group out there that just, you know, there's always going to be a percentage that it's just so apolitical that they won't even take the time to go vote. So there, whatever percentage that is, you got to take that out of the equation. But for the most part, of that 50%, there's a large chunk that simply are looking for some place to park, you know, their, their ideological uh, car, if I can put it that way. Absolutely. You've hit the nail on the head. Like the, the conventional thinking is, uh, you know, for politicians like Kathy and William and Patrick Brown, well, we got to hug the center of the spectrum because that's where we're going to get our majority by appealing uh, to the vast majority of people in the center. But Mike Harris didn't do it that way, did he, right? He won two majority governments running on a plain, clear conservative message because he energized people who didn't vote, people who were were disenchanted he energized people with what he was saying rob ford the guy won toronto right running on a clear uh, populist fiscally conservative message and you know donald trump uh did some of this too donald trump did his best in the primaries in democratic held states right not in conservative states where ted cruz run. donald trump was energizing people who weren't politically uh, engaged at all, or they voted for Democrats um, for other reasons, for for uh, demographic, you know, ethnocultural reasons, for historical reasons. But he articulated a clear position on a couple of issues that would be characterized as conservative, and he attracted those voters. So these guys did it not by hugging the center, but by presenting clear message that nobody else was talking about. All right, with that, I'm going to hold you there. I have to play a short commercial. So I just hang on, don't go away. Uh, I'm going to okay. take a short break here. And when we get back, we'll have more with our guest, Craig D'Alessandria and uh, Mike, Shel Mike Shelby right after this. Association, the voice of independent truckers in the Ottawa area and proud supporters of Nick at Night. Every day we go to work to help build a better eastern Ontario and safety is our top priority. Every start of the shift our drivers perform inspections on their truck so we ensure that our drivers go home to their families each night and you the public have confidence that the big truck beside you is safe. If you have any issues relating to any size truck I encourage you to contact me at 613-738-1639. Let's build a better fatality free Ottawa together. All right, for all of you out there, if you want to give us a call, 343-700-4390, excuse me, 844-562-4766. And you can also send us a note via Nick at night at CFRA.com, jeez, uh, at late night old habits I heard, I'm sorry. Um, 
And you can send me a note on Facebook as well. My guest is uh, Craig D'Alessandria, a longtime political activist. And actually, we could almost throw the throw the new title in, political party uh, builder, <laughs> thrown in that. And I also have commentator at large, Mike Shelby, with me as, uh, as uh, well. So, uh, Craig, I want to go back to you for a moment. Let's talk about... Um, when you first began to think about how this part, what this party was going to look like, give us your opening thoughts. Like, where did, what was the, I don't want to say the genesis, that's obvious. The genesis was the frustration people felt. But when you looked at this and said, okay, uh, we have to do something different, what's the first thing that came to your mind? Well, the first thing that came to my mind is it's incredibly hard and incredibly expensive to start a new party and the hopes of winning an election are abysmal. So why would anybody want to do this? But I realized that the thing, the thing you want to do isn't necessarily win government. What you want to do is change the conversation. And in Ontario, we have a very narrow range of what is acceptable political conversation. There's something called the Overton window. Uh, this, is, this, is a, this is described by... Uh, a man by the name of Overton who worked for a, um, a think tank in Michigan, what he's describing is the range of political opinion that is um, open for public discussion that a, that a politician will actually embrace. So um, on, on uh, the issue, for instance, as we talk about the issue of abortion, this issue lies completely outside the Overton window in Ontario. Nobody's willing to talk about it. If you do talk about it, the media will uh, crucify you. Um, so it's not really the politicians' fault that they can't talk about this, but the issue is outside the window, so they, they won't touch it because they feel it's stigmatized by the populace, by the media, as unacceptable to talk about. So what... What we have in Ontario is we have a situation where you can't talk about abortion, you can't talk about private health care, you can't talk about vouchers for public schools, and you can't really talk about issues of democratic reform. That's, that's probably the most uh, acceptable of these topics that you can talk about. Sometimes a PC backbencher will bring it up. You know, we need more referendum, more uh, plebiscites, more we need recall of MPPs. But generally, it's something that politicians won't talk about because they'll be labeled a kook, they'll be labeled, they'll be considered outside the mainstream. So what a new party needs to do is move the Overton window. It needs to make it, needs to bring these topics into public debate, make them something that are that is talked about um, openly uh, so that other people out there who have, who have, who hold to these beliefs realize, hey, I'm not alone. Uh, there are other pro-lifers out there. There are other people who think vouchers for schools are a good idea. There are people who think democratic reform is desperately needed in this province. So a new party, which has no chance of winning election, let's be honest, and certainly not an election in 2018, a new party can have a great impact uh, on the mainstream parties by talking about these issues, by bringing them out. And we can really have an impact on Patrick Brown and the Conservatives because these issues appeal to people in his base who aren't being appealed to otherwise. And when we start, when a new party starts to talk about these issues and starts to get the attention of PC voters, then we get Patrick Brown's attention. 
So as an example of this was in the Scarborough Rouge River by-election last August. I don't know if you recall this. Um, the PCs thought they might win this. It would, they thought it would be very tight. Um, it had been a liberal riding, I think, since it was, was created. But you know, things were shaping up pretty good for the Conservatives. So they thought if all their ducks were in a row, they could snag this seat from the Liberals. And everything was going along really well until a woman named Queenie Yu filed her nomination, filed her candidacy papers. And she was running as an independent on the issue of the uh, sex ed curriculum changes that right. Kathleen Wynne had been bringing in. And this, uh, the prospect of Queenie Yu siphoning off some votes from the Conservatives so terrified Patrick Brown and his um, chief of staff that they reached out to Queenie. And you probably recall the whole story. There were letters. Um, there was a letter uh, went out to the voters of the riding saying that Patrick Brown was against the sex ed curriculum. Um, yes, later, I remember Patrick that Brown story very well. Announcing the letter. Right. So Patrick Brown was desperate to win the riding, but he was also desperate to not appear as a social conservative, and he got caught between a rock and a hard place, all because of an independent candidate with no party, no money, no volunteers running on this issue. And they thought, if Queen U takes 500 votes, we're we not going to win this riding. Yeah. So we know that Patrick Brown is open to pressure. And I think that is what a new party can achieve. It can put pressure on the Conservatives. And by putting pressure on, we force them to address our issues. Just as the NDP does to the Liberals, an NDP of the right can do to the Conservatives. So in other words... So, you know, I was... I was just going to say, in other words, we may not be king at the end of the day, but we get to tell the king how to wear his crown. I would say it would be better if we weren't king. Because what, I, what I've seen in politics, and I think what you've seen too, is once somebody is king, they tend to lose the plot. Yeah, that's right? true. Power corrupts, absolutely. Power, Power corrupts, corrupts, absolutely. absolutely. All right, well, let's... You know, let's if, we, if we won, well, yeah. I was just going to say, um, you're, you're, you're making perfect sense. Uh, I think there's a lot to uh, a lot to what you're saying that uh, you know is is well dare I say obvious to political junkies like you and me it's obvious uh, to the average voter uh, this I'm hoping this is music to their ears because these I think your your assessment of you know the kind of role that a new party can play in the short term at least because every party theoretically at least uh, could be is a government in waiting just ask Bob Ray um, so you have to be prepared. Uh, to form government, you have to have policies and anything. And I want to get into that, um, but before I do, let's let's talk about some of the guiding principles that this uh, yet, as yet unnamed uh, party uh, will conduct itself by. Sure. Well, I think the first principle and the the primary principle that should guide the party and should guide policy development is: what can we as a party say? that is not being said by any party, uh, by any main, uh, mainstream party currently, what can we say that they're not saying that would appeal to voters on the right? How can we be a voice for the disenfranchised voter on the right? And uh, that's actually, that's a radical idea because even fringe parties are, are constantly under this, this pressure. There's this magnetic 
draw to the center. And the, the, the tendency is to water down what you're saying or hold to a, hold to a policy that um, may be considered outside the mainstream, but don't really emphasize it. You know, and I'm saying the overriding principle needs to be the opposite. We need to be radical on the right and uh, when we're criticized for it, we need to double down because if you show weakness, then then they're going to come and get you. You know, uh, traditional conservative voters have nothing to be ashamed of, and they're made to feel ashamed. They're made to sh feel ashamed for holding to principles and values that 20 years ago, 40 years ago, were mainstream Ontario values, and we. We run away from them. A good example of this is the issue around what Dr. Jordan Peterson is facing, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. At the University of Toronto. Here, here's a guy who is not backed down, but he's basically alone. When, when you're called one of the names that, that the mainstream media will call you or that mainstream politicians will call you, people tend to back down because people don't want the conflict. So I'm saying a new party needs to be committed to our principles and we need to be bold about our principles. Okay, so let's... how we move the, that, that discussion window. All right. Uh, it's time for me to take another quick break. I have We've got some bills to pay, so I'm going to do that. So, Craig, if you can stay with us, I'll encourage you to do that. And I'm going to bring Mike into the conversation when we get back, because I want to start getting into the nuts and bolts of this, you know, different policies, uh, the internal workings like nominations and things like that, because there's a lot of ground that we can cover there and learn from the mistakes of our enemies so that we don't have to make them ourselves. Uh, you know, like, well, well, I'll save that conversation for after the break, but just to basically give you a little heads up. Um, with that, hang on there, Craig. I'm going to put you on mute for a moment. We'll play a quick commercial, and we'll be right back after this on the Nick at Night Show. I've been taking my cars to Irwin's Automotion. 17 years ago, Irwin was renting space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra, eight bays, and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money and headaches, but fix it right the first time. Irwin's Automotion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell them council sent you. That'll make them smile. You know, one of the great things about being a non-terrestrial radio station, you don't have 4,200 commercials to play at every break. <laughs> My guest this evening is Craig DeLasandria. Am I saying that last name right, Craig? It's actually DeLandria, 
but I was uh, I was going to let you go with the wrong pronunciation in case I said something crazy, then nobody could track you down. <laughs> I thought there was an S in there. My apologies. See, this is why I carry a license, so I know who I am. Never mind anybody else. And I also have Mike Shelby in studio. Well, your, last name, your last name is very... Yeah, well, listen, if you get my last name wrong, that's no surprise. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we used to keep a list of how badly it could be spelled at home, and after about 25 or 30 versions, we just gave up on it. Um, and Mike Shelby is here as well, as commentator at large. Okay, gentlemen, let, let's get into some of the policies uh, that this new party uh, will most likely have. There's, it's not cast in stone yet, of course. Uh, it's still a work in progress. But we're, from what I understand, it's very, very close, and I think it's safe to talk about some of this stuff. Uh, let's start with one of my pet peeves, um, taxes. Oh, God, the tax rate. Um, this new SoCon party, I mean, when people talk about uh, conservative economic principles, let's talk about what real conservative principles are on taxes. Let me go with Craig, and then I'll get Mike's input. Go ahead, Craig. Sure. Well, I think... Uh Conservatives seem to think balancing the budget. This is a this is a, a, a important conservative principle when it comes to taxes and, and spending. You know, Sweden can balance the budget. It's not about balancing the budget. In the long run, you're gonna you have to balance your budget or you go bankrupt. What we want is reduced spending. That's and that's what we never get, right? We yeah. get balanced budgets periodically, which is good, but we need reduced spending and. And we need tax policy that um, incentivizes productivity. So these are both things that are not on the radar with any party uh, right now. Even Harper, uh, you know, alleged fiscal conservative, what did he do with respect to tax policy? Well, he reduced, he reduced the GST, the federal portion of the sale tax, which... Hey, any time a tax is reduced, that's great. Yeah, I'll take a tax cut anyway. Doing was reducing income taxes, right? Uh-huh. But he, he, his tax policy, his tax policy revolved around what he thought would help him get reelected. So he cut the GST. He had these boutique uh, tax credits with respect, you know, buy your kid hockey equipment or dance shoes and get a, a tax credit. We, th- this is making the tax system more complex, more inefficient. It's more difficult to do your taxes. You got more bureaucrats, more accountants, more, more, more non-productive energy being spent. So we need a simplified tax system. We need a, a system that has lower, flatter uh, income tax rates that incentivizes work, and incentivizes productivity, and makes it easy for the average person to file their taxes. We don't need boutique. Uh, tax credits that appeal to some segment of the policy, of the, of the policy that are de- devised simply to win votes. All right, Mike, I'm going to let you jump in here. Um, is it done? No, not yet. Let me press that button. Okay, now you're on. Um, one of the things that I'm thinking of, and I brought it up uh, recently, and I've brought it up before, is you know Calvin Coolidge. Calvin Coolidge and uh, Warren Harding cut the federal government for the United States by from something like 18 uh, billion down to six point something billion in one cut and then the following year they cut it again down to three billion and that's a that's a massive massive cut 
they also cut the taxes dramatically, not like as you were saying about with Harper with this little 1% here and a little bit off, the little dust off there and a little piece off the corner there. That That's nothing. Um, that's It's all image politics. I I would like to see more meaningful cuts and, and helping people to understand that there's a history to this. It's not just, we're not just fanciful thinking, hey, big cuts sound great. Um, the Roaring Twenties sounded pretty good to me. Uh, the boost to the economy, the boost to people having more money in their pocket to spend and and live their lives instead of... Because what, what I see with government is any dollar that goes into government, a big portion of it gets wasted before any of it goes to what it was taken for in the first place. So it's the most inefficient thing possible. The more money that gets sucked up into government, the less productive society is, the less productive the government is, and the money goes less and less further. So... It seems to me a, a one good start would be to make meaningful cuts, not just this little uh, frou-frou stuff that people, oh, I want to make a tax cut, but not too big, just enough, you know, just enough that it sounds good, that they won't beat me up over. Uh, that's a little weak stuff. I, I like what you were saying about Mike Harris. He sure seemed to be straightforward. You know, people are... I, I don't know if I agree with you on the Trump thing, but again, people took him as straightforward. They want straight talk. They want some honest, clean answers. They don't they don't need all this double talk. One of the things I wanted to get to, so it, that's that's. I guess what we could sum it up is dramatically cutting, reducing the cost of running the government on on the population of Ontario is a good thing, no matter what. And let's face it, gentlemen. It, no matter what we do, and by we I'm talking in a very broad sense, um, they are going to call us every name in the book. So I think it's prudent to understand that to be going, going into this and to be ready to bat those assertions aside. Oh, you you want to see people starving in the streets. Oh, you're you're this phobe, you're that phobe. Yeah, 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 okay, that's great. We all know that. Let's get back to business and bat it aside and, and concentrate on the point and not let them paint us with a You're, particular brush. We're being called names by people who wear vagina hats. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I mean, let's be real. That's who's beating our, the crap out of us, too, politically yeah. speaking. So, I mean, we can laugh at them, but they're kicking our butts. So, so maybe it's, it's time to... It's time for us to grow up. Yeah, exactly. All right. Totally agree. So, Craig, let me let me go to the next big topic um, that are, is on everybody's mind. And there's a bunch of them. We could spend two hours just talking about individual topics that need to be dealt with. But let's go to the big one. That is energy. Um, you know, this new party, the policy, if you've given it any thought, maybe you could articulate a little bit about what its energy policy would be. How are we going to deal with the crushing weight of the cost of electricity in this province? Yeah, that's a good question, isn't it? And we haven't heard of a solution uh, from Patrick Brown. Um, it's because he hasn't got one. Once you've locked into a thirty, yeah. Well, well once you've locked uh, the province into a thirty-year contract, what is the solution? I mean, the, the best he can do is stop the bleeding going forward. Uh, Kathleen Wynne's approach, of course, is to uh, throw it onto the next generation, or you know, four years down the road, take your take your pick. Yeah, so we're really in a bind in this province. What can we do? Can we tear up these contracts? That's a radical position. Yes. Are we prepared it, to go down that road? Well, 
I, I know I personally would because I don't think there's a contract written you can't get out of. If one of the uh, party uh, signatories to the party makes a change to the contract without the consent of the other party, guess what? The contract's null and void. So you because you right. have to have consent by both parties. So you could lay a lot of claim on false advertising. There's all kinds of legal tools you, you'd have. Uh, the question is, uh, you know, is it worth the fight? I, some I think of the, it is. Some of the windmill, because when you were still back on the other station, remember that um, uh, it was when you had, I think, Liz Marshall and a few others on, and somebody called in, and they started revealing what was in some of these contracts with the windmills. Yeah. And it was designed to make it pretty much so painful of taking it out or canceling it. In other words, they thought of that. It's almost as deadly to try to kill it uh, as it is to leave it in place. Now, obviously, I think you can't... It's like a cancer. It's sucking us dry. You can't leave this in. But, you know, we're going to have to address the fact that these were intentionally set well, up to make it impossible no, to Craig, pull out. <clears throat> let me let me throw this at you. And this is... Uh, we're just, just, just sitting around talking. And again, you can't undo the past. But if we hadn't wasted seven billion a billion dollars on gas plants, if we hadn't wasted countless billions on e-health and all the other scandals, we might have the money to buy ourselves out of these contracts. So it's good fiscal sure. management, right? Is what we really have to put into place. Well, we we need that, but I mean that's something that the PCs are going to run on. We're we're efficient managers, and we're going to get waste out of the system. We hear this every four years. I mean, the system itself is waste. The system is set yeah. up to waste our money. It's not just a few inefficient bureaucracies. We're spending money by design in places that we shouldn't spend it. So let's look at education. The cost to educate a child in the public school, English public school system in where I am in North Bay, last numbers I saw was $12,500 a year. English Catholic, thirteen five. French public, something like seventeen five, And French Catholic, close to $20,000. I have a friend who sends his child to a private school in Ottawa for $10,000 a year. A private for-profit school can educate a child at less cost than any school board in my district. So the system is designed to waste money because even if the schools are operating efficiently, if all those if that money is not going to administration, it's still costing more than a private enterprise would would cost to do it. Patrick Brown is not going to cut public education. Patrick Brown is not going to bring in a voucher system. But these are the kinds of things that need to be done to make to bring our budget in balance, to bring our taxes down. To make Ontario a competitive province again. Well, let me ask you this: Nobody's talking about school vouchers. What would voucher a voucher system look like under this new party's if the new if this new party ever form, form government? What would that look like to the average voter? How would how would it work? So, yeah. So I'm not the fount of all policy for this party, but it, in, in my opinion, what it should look like is it should look like a substantial coupon given to every parent that they can spend on their child's education as they want. So let's say it's $8,000, and they can take it to a Christian school, they can take it to a public school, they can, you know, a, sorry, not a public school, a private school, a non-religious private school, 
where the tuition is $20,000 or where the tuition is $6,000. They can take it to the school they want to, to pay for the education of their child. And for every child that exits the public system, you're saving thousands of dollars for the taxpayer a year, and the child is getting an equal or better education at a school of their choice. To me, this is a no-brainer, and the, the only reason it isn't happening is because of the overwhelming influence of the teachers' unions yeah. in this province. Well, first you know, of all... We've got the Liberal Party... Go ahead, finish your thought. Sorry. sorry, they've got the Liberal Party in their back pocket, and they've got the PCs absolutely terrified, and they, they run education policy in this province. Well, a voucher system would do two things. It would save the taxpayers enormous amounts of money, and it would free us from the power of the teacher union monopolies. Okay. So, I first of all, let me let you off the hot seat. I, I'm When you said you're not the fond of all policy, I get that. This is still a, a bit of a work in progress. So, don't when I'm asking these questions, it's not like I'm asking for the official party line because we don't even know what the name of the party is yet. But it's more of a, con, it's a conversation about the general direction the party's going in. Uh, that's kind of what I'm after so that people get an idea of uh, what they're in for when we, <clears throat> for lack of a better term, when this party hits the ground running. See, one of the things that I'm thinking as I'm listening to this is we're talking taxes, we're talking, you know, school, we're talking health care, we're talking why everything costs so much, why everything, you know, is so slow and so crappy. We have terrible, terrible service. We, you know, everybody claims, oh, thank goodness we got it paid for. I just had to wait 24 hours at the hospital. Yeah, for a, to, yeah and for, a, you know what I mean? That's ridiculous. I listen to some of the talk radio in the States, and when I listen to commercials for hospitals that promise you guaranteed uh, you're going to see the doctor within 30 minutes at the emergency room, I don't even know if I remember ever seeing a doctor in 30 minutes anywhere in this province. You know, so when I what I'm when I when I'm sort of wondering and thinking when we approach these topics with people, because, yeah, we're used to the, the mantras that, you know, all, there's, all the people are dying in the streets. No, people are dying in waiting lines in this province and in this country. That's yeah. the that's where people are really dying. So I'm sick and tired of hearing about all the dead Americans in the street, which was a lie that when it's a real thing going on here. And I, and my first thing when I think about privatization is. Why the heck, if you're waiting in a, uh, a six-month line to get a, some kind of a life-saving uh, test or, or treatment or to see a specialist for something, why the heck is it illegal for you to get out and go pay for somebody? I mean, that's something most people, if you're the one waiting in line, I don't see why you want to keep waiting. And the people who can't afford to get out of the line, well, that's a whole lot of other people that just got out of your way. They just left. You just moved up all those spots. I don't see why that's a loser. Exactly. Okay, well, the, the, now just playing the other side here. What the mantra is, well, that would be unfair. That would be, we can't have a two-tiered health care. So well, wait, wait, wait. So what's fair? Waiting and dying in the in the yeah, waiting room? That's, that's what's fair? Just, who wants just, to do that? That's, Let's sign people up. That's the people who who have, who like, who have want the system to remain the same. But you see, we're so used to recoiling from that kind of stuff. Yeah. I'm sorry, but I don't want to wait until I die in the waiting room. I want to get the heck treated. I want to find out what's wrong with me while it's still wrong with me. I don't want it to become a permanent condition. And, and I think people get that. People don't want to. I, 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 it's a nightmare to even think to go to the hospital now. Okay, right? gentlemen, I'm going to impose another uh, another quick break. 
uh, when we get back, I want to talk about <clears throat> a little bit of the logistics. Uh, we'll talk about, um, uh, you know, what kind of how the nomination process will probably look like. Uh, the controls over the leader. If if uh, if Craig, if you're up to speed on that, if you're not, that's fine. I don't expect you to have every answer to every question. But uh, I, I think based on recent history, some of the riding associations have gone on, and the shenanigans that have gone on in this, certainly in Ontario under Patrick Brown, uh, I think it's a relevant conversation. Uh, and just look at uh, how this party may do things different. Uh, and make sure that those kinds of things not only don't happen, but can't happen. So with that, gentlemen, uh, I'll put everybody on pause for a second. We'll play a commercial. We'll be right back here on the Nick and Night Show. the voice of independent truckers in the Ottawa area and proud supporters of Nick at Night. Every day we go to work to help build a better eastern Ontario and safety is our top priority. Every start of the shift, our drivers perform inspections on their truck so we ensure that our drivers go home to their families each night and you, the public, have confidence that the big truck beside you is safe. If you have any issues relating to any size truck, I encourage you to contact me at 613-738-1639. Let's build a better, fatality-free Ottawa together. bring Mike back or Craig back on. There we are. Now, if you want to get in the uh, last minute phone call, uh, I have Craig for an hour. So I want to make full use of that. Uh, the numbers are 343-700-4390-844-562-4766. Okay, gentlemen, uh, basically to wrap up this, uh, this, this conversation, because we could go for hours on this. And uh, I have a feeling that we'll be we'll revisit this conversation sooner rather than later. But um, a lot of the stuff that's been going on under the PC leadership in this province has really put a bad taste in people's mouths. Parachuting in candidates, handpicking them from from Toronto, rigging uh, the uh, riding association, at, uh, you know, nomination elections, and so on. Um, what kind of lessons do those hold for this new party, Craig? And how will that uh, show up in policies and, and in the way the logistical and the back end of the, of the party works? Sure. So I think the mechanism that the PCs have in place to choose their, their candidates is fine. Of course, it's, the, it's when the, the process goes off the rails, right, because mm -hmm. somebody's 
intervening, uh, typically from head office. And there's there's three reasons why they intervene and they disrupt the the, uh, the process. And I think the, either it's because they want a particular candidate who's possibly a friend uh, or somebody a friend of somebody with influence in the hierarchy of the party. Okay. Or secondly, they think that somebody else has a better winnability probability than the local candidate who has more local support. Okay. Or uh, the, third, the third reason is uh, somebody has opened their mouth and said something that uh, the Toronto elite think is uh, inappropriate, and we can't have this embarrassing Neanderthal representing our party. All right. Got to hold you so there. because the reasons that... I'm going to hold okay. you. I have a phone call, so I want to take the call. Uh, let's just... Okay. Good evening. Welcome to the Naked Night Show. You're on the air. Yeah, hi. This is Tom Harris from the International Climate Science Course. And how are you, Nick? Well, good evening, Tom. I'm fine. How are you? You're on the air with Craig De- De- Delandria. Delandria. and Mike Shelby. Yeah. And Nick Vandergracht. Oh, yes, me too. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to make a quick point. Um, you know, years ago I went to a presentation by Elizabeth May. Uh, I think she was the head of the Sierra Club at the time. And she was being very critical of Prime Minister Martin. Uh, about his climate policy, because, of course, they weren't going as far as the Sierra Club wanted uh, or whatever group she was leading. And uh, so somebody put up their hand and said, why are you being so critical of Prime Minister Martin? I mean, he was instrumental in getting you a Order of Canada and, you know, he, he's on your side. And Elizabeth, Elizabeth May said something that I thought was very meaningful and is an example of what conservatives don't do. And what she said is that if I don't criticize Paul Martin when he doesn't do what I want, then he won't do what I want. He'll do what people who push him uh, on the other side do. And, and, you know, it's interesting because when I went to the with Patrick Brown in Stittsville uh, about half a year ago, uh, some of the conservatives there were very angry with me for saying that, you know, disagreeing with Patrick Brown. They were saying, well, you know, what do you want? Do you want, uh, do you want to have uh, wins day in his, uh, you have to support Patrick Brown. We have to get win out of there. And I think that conservatives are doing that in general. I mean, they are afraid in many cases to attack in public uh, stupid policies from conservatives like Patrick Brown. And I think as a consequence, they just, Patrick Brown just takes it for granted. And I think we really need to take a page out of the left wing book, out of people like Elizabeth May's book, and not be afraid to criticize conservatives when they don't do the things that we want them to do. I can actually speak up and vouch for because I was raising, I actually raised questions about Patrick Brown. I was one of the few. I remember Nick had reservations at the time during the, during the, uh, the leadership race. And, you know, there were a lot of people, friendly friend, people were friends with that, you know, they were invested in Brown and I understand all that. But a lot of supporters would turn more on us. What are you trying to do? Exactly like what you just said. You, you, if we don't get this guy, it's all going to lose. Um, I think raising yeah. those yeah, questions was vital. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, all yeah. it did was silence it. And now you look at he's wandering all over the pasture without a, you know, he's like there's no horse uh, guiding this cart anymore. It's just all over the place. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because when I asked Patrick Brown, do you think humans are causing dangerous climate change? Which, of course, we don't think. We don't agree with that. Uh, he wouldn't answer. And, and, you know, it's interesting because I taped the meeting and listened to it later. You know, I didn't obviously use it. But regardless, uh, the bottom line is I, 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 I actually asked him 10 times. And he finally said, I don't know. And so, you know, bottom line is 
I said, well, then why don't you say that? He said, I'm not going to lose the election over climate change. And the next day, he was actually uh, on CFRA radio with Evan Solomon, and he was saying the opposite. He was saying it's a great catastrophe, it's a crisis, and everything else. But you notice, and, and I think that you know, I'd rather he lose. You notice frankly. the difference between, uh, like, see, uh, as much as I it bothers me, the NDP and and the Green Party, you've got to give it to them. They don't stray. They believe what they're pushing, and they don't walk away from it. Their principles guide them, whereas with us, it sure seems like our principles are in our back pocket, and we're going to say whatever we got to say to win as if that's all it's about is winning, and our principles don't matter. And this is why you're getting this, well, he's for this, and then the, the federal party is against the carbon tax, and then you get all this nonsense that makes us look like a joke well, because we don't believe in anything. Get, that's why people are jaded. Gentlemen, uh, I, Tom, I appreciate your call. I want to get back to Craig before we run out of time. So thank you very much, and I hope to hear sure. from you again soon. Thanks. Okay, so Craig, we were talking about nomination processes and so on. Um, I kind of remembering where we were. Oh, you were saying that the, the process is fine. It's when it goes off the rails. Right. So uh, I see a new party as not uh, being um, susceptible to the same pressures that the PC party falls to with respect to nomination meetings. So if we look at the three issues I mentioned, so friends, you know, Patrick Brown tries to stick his friend in as a candidate. Winability, he thinks he knows somebody who's more, has a better chance of winning. Or three, he's worried about uh, a local yokel saying something nuts. So let's start with the third one. You know, this new party should be a party that is committed to free speech. And when I say committed to free speech, that's not just just a phrase. You know, in Alberta, uh, Wild Rose, in the previous election, had an incident where one of their candidates said something um, with respect to same-sex marriage that didn't completely align with party policy and certainly didn't align with CBC uh, perspective on the issue. So what did Danielle Smith do? She threw the candidate under the bus. What I propose a new party on the right in Ontario would do is, depending on what, uh, the, uh, what the issue is that the person spoke out on, either um, agree with them if it actually makes common sense and appeals to a, a sector of the electorate, or you know, say, yeah, that's, that's uh, so-and-so's opinion, and uh, we don't agree with it, but we have a policy with respect to free speech and the issue of free speech, the principle of free speech is greater than this issue that you're, that you, Mr. Mainstream media have your knickers in a knot over. And so while this is not party policy, I completely support that candidate's right to say such a thing. And it's up to the uh, voters in that riding to determine if they want to return that person as a representative or not. So I think a commitment to free speech needs to override concerns about electability. And the reason I say that is because the lack of free speech in this province is, is one of the biggest issues in this province. It's a reason that we have little differentiation between the PC and Liberal parties, and it's the reason that policy changes at Queen's Park inevitably move to the left because we are always shutting down comments from the right, both extreme and not extreme. And when we do that, what we're saying to voters is, 
these opinions are unacceptable. Your opinions are unacceptable, and and we are not going to hear from you. And so policy and law move to the left in this province. What? So not just not that's just one reason why. Sorry, I was just thinking, you know, it's not just throwing them under the bus and silencing them. It's this idea that there's going to be a perfect candidate or they're only ever going to be like a... I think people are sick and tired of the uh, robotic automatons that go out and just say the same thing the dear leader says. I I would rather uh, uh, somebody who... Okay, maybe they didn't say it the greatest. Look at the slack they were cutting Trump. Look at the slack they cut Rob Ford. We're talking... You know, everyone keeps telling us it's so impossible to win in Toronto. Rob Ford, he he smoked in Toronto. So what was that about? Again, people will ex- people will accept, you know, imperfect politicians. And by the way, you know, the rest of the party doesn't necessarily agree with that person. But we want all voices being heard. And then, you know, that's it. Okay, gentlemen, um, last word to you, Craig. Uh, I know that there's no hard and fast timeline, but uh, and we keep saying much sooner rather than much later. Any idea on roughly when we can expect an official launch and perhaps even a name? Well, you're asking me to go out on a limb here. All I'll, <laughs> I'll say is uh, it's radio shows like this. It's, it's, it's radio programs like this uh, that are getting the message out. And the more we get the message out, the sooner it's going to happen. Because the sooner we're going to reach those people who uh, have the initiative and the enthusiasm and the fire to make this thing happen. Because it's not going to happen with uh, five or six people in Toronto or five or six people in Ottawa. It's going to take people across the province getting energized, getting motivated, uh, and getting in motion make this happen so uh you know get get in uh, people need to get in contact with us uh, through through your website or through uh ndp of the right.ca well we got we got to do something of ndp of the right that's just gonna <laughs> i think it's gold <laughs> no no truth. no <laughs> well that but that is the website name so i'm well, gonna write I'm that gonna... down yeah. ndp of the right i actually i love that i think that's great yeah. Of, sure, of course, oh, we're emulating their tactics, not their balls. Yeah, that's no. right. Doesn't mean we want to... I just get acid reflux, that's all. I'm just... I'm sorry. <laughs> right.ca. So NDP of the right.ca, they can reach They can reach uh, you and, and the people who are bolting this whole thing together. Is that that's correct? Right. Yep. All right. Listen, gentlemen, that I thank you. Correct. I thank you both for being here. It's been an amazing hour, and I certainly look forward to the upcoming weeks and months ahead because we are going to shake some timbers, I think, and it's a bloody well about time. Forgive my French, but that's the way I feel about it. Uh, Mike, thank you, and Craig, again, thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Have a good night. Thank you, Nick. Good night. All right. We are going to uh, take a break here. Um, I'm going to go and reload. (laughs) So... (laughs) We'll be back with more and other interesting topics. There's a whole host of stuff we haven't even had a chance to scratch yet. But I wanted to get this stuff out there because this is important. People need to know that there's going to be a place to go to park their vote. Because right now, for people like me and people like you, there isn't one. So exciting stuff. Hope you'll stay with us. We'll be back after this.
So Nick is reloading and taking a much-needed break. Not that he needs one. But maybe it's a good thing. So if you want to fire him off an email, just uh, send it to Nick at LateNightCouncil.com. That's simple, huh? Nick at LateNightCouncil.com. Or better yet, call now. Hey, I know he could talk forever, but you know what? If you're doing talk radio, you love the calls. 343-700-4390. That's 343-700-4390 for the Capital Region. And if you can't get through on that line or you live far, far, far away, like we're talking about Alaska, 1-844-562-4766. That's 1-844-562-4766. Now, our call service is automated. You won't be talking to a live person until you're live on air. Don't sweat it. Just follow the prompts and while you're on hold and, and, and you'll be fine. night does not exist without advertisers so if you want to buy time you contact either myself jc at latenightcouncil.com or you can contact nick if you're more comfortable with him and of course i certainly understand that you can contact nick at latenightcouncil.com the ads are like really really cheap i mean you're gonna you're gonna love them okay you're, you're, we've, we've made them quite accessible Feedback is always welcome. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. And thanks for tuning in. Now, back to Nick at Night. Okay, welcome back to the Nick and Night Show, folks. 343-700-4390-844-562-4766. I want to thank my guest in the previous hour, uh, Craig Delandria and uh, Mike Shelby, who has decided uh, graciously to stick around for the next hour or so. Uh, there's plenty of other things to talk about, and it's always fun to have a conversation rather than a monologue. And you can always help me break that up, too, with your phone calls. So give, give us a shout. At the numbers I mentioned, 343-700-4390-844-562-4766. If you have any comments on what you heard or, or questions, uh, the website is ndpoftheright.ca. You can go and learn more there uh, about this new party. Um, and I'm thinking maybe even next week we might just have some fun kicking around different poss possible uh, names for this party because there's a wide, you know, it's getting the right label uh isn't as easy as it sounds. You know, it's not like you're going to call him Fred. Yeah, you're my son. Oh. I, didn't, I didn't want to just jump in. Are you sure? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, sure. I can't tell anymore. we got so many things going on in here. <laughs> we don't call it the bunker for nothing, you know. <laughs> it's um, command control center. No, one of the things that 
you know, I we didn't get to discuss, and you know, we had limited time. We we're trying to cover a lot of ground, and I really wanted to let him speak. But uh, one of the things that I'm it, call it a pet peeve, but uh, there's so many rules and regulations on us, on the citizenry, and on business, and you know, we we talk about cutting all that. But one of the things we never ever discuss is imposing some rules on the government. They are. They have carte blanche. They get to do whatever they want. They write the rules for themselves. This is why we have a political elite that's completely out of control. And I think there's got to be, surely, to goodness, there's an appetite of people out there that would like to see a little few rules put on them for a change. That to restrict their intrusion into our lives. No question about that. And it's the... One of the things that we didn't get a chance to talk, talk about, and I know there's uh, a lot of uh, appetite for it, um, it's called a, a voter recall. And it's attractive, but there's a problem with it. Yep. Because <clears throat> imagine this. You've got a government that is tracking back towards the right, um, being fiscally responsible, although it's hard to say government and fiscally responsible in the same sentence, but is more concerned with dealing with the debt than they are the deficit. You deal with both, but certainly the debt is the big one. That's the mortgage. It is not the monthly, you know, monthly allotment for bills. Uh, and trying to whittle that down and, and get a handle on the size of government. And you have a whole bunch of people out there who don't like that. And they find a candidate that they can marshal their forces within and suddenly cause uh, an artific- what I would call an artificial recall, where they storm a rioting and, and create... Scott Walker. Yeah. Everybody, anybody who is following conservative circles here and in the, in the states knows what happened with Scott Walker. Look at uh, the the nonsense with uh, Larry O'Brien. It wasn't exactly recall, but what they did was they threw the system into turmoil and pulled him out of being effective. So yep. while Scott Walker was elected uh, multiple times because they kept recalling him, uh, meantime the policy agenda is on hold because he's not getting it through. That's so one of the things that I think people misunderstand, and this is because we misuse the language a lot. We all do it. We say democracy. Um, democracy is not liberty. That's something people have to understand. It's merely a device for deciding certain things. But if you, dis- if you use it to decide all things, eventually it is that analogy of two wolves and a sheep deciding what's for dinner. Because there is no protection in that setup to protect the sheep from being outvoted for what the other two want. So one of the things that, and this is one of the reasons why I always bring up the American experience so much, because they have a better way of explaining democracy and when to use it, when not to use it, how to... It's all about dividing power and faction. It's all about recognizing that factions happen in democratic circles, in party circles, in, um, you know... The, the different branches of government, they never intended to have uh, Congress and Senate both elected by the same group because it defeats the purpose. The same group of people that elected the one guy is going to elect the same thing on the other side. So it, it defeats the purpose. You're not really breaking up power. So that's one of the things people don't understand. There's a real push, and it's from the left, to democratize, democratize, democratize. That's why Harper wanted to democratize our Senate. I We can have problems and issues issues with it all day long, but we need to understand that, you know, you need to understand what you're putting in you as a, as a medicine to solve the problem before you take it. 
because if you take the wrong thing, you could make it a whole lot worse or add something you didn't intend. Fair enough, fair yeah. enough. Yeah. Um, one of the stories that's in the media today, I want to shift topics a little bit. Uh, first of all, this one's I, I don't know. <laughs> they actually did a study in Israel about this, and I cannot... It was kind of... I posted it as a joke because it's so obvious. You wouldn't believe how long the thread got. It was ridiculous. New Israeli research reveals that men are men and women are women. Really? They needed us, but this is all about this trans, transgender, multifaceted, you know, today I'm a boy, tomorrow I'm a girl. Who knows what it'll be Thursday morning. I could wake up and feel like something different kind of nonsense that's out there. So they found out, let me just read the first couple of paragraphs. A new study by Israeli researchers found that a man cannot become a woman by simply identifying as one and vice versa. Really? <clears throat> Genetics, geneticists from Israel's uh, Wiseman Institute of Science discovered certain genes that are only expressed in women while others are only expressed in men. Look, folks, biology does not lie. If you're someone who believes that science is the ultimate in wisdom and knowledge, how do you argue with that? If you're someone that believes in a more creationist, religious view, then you already know that. You know, man and woman, he made them, right? So no matter which way you turn, whether you go to a, 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 a Christian or, or, or a religious worldview that says God made us each men and women and ne'er the twain shall cross. You know, you're not going to... Uh, that's the way he built us. Okay, you come to the, that conclusion. There's only two genders. And if you look at science, they say the same thing. And yet we still have this nonsense out there. So I posted it as a bit of a joke. But the thread got just blown away how, how people could just... Like, I got called... Uh, in one case, arrogant and ignorant because I didn't understand that, you know, well, it's only one survey was the comment. You only need one in this case. Like if you do a genetics test on somebody, if, if all you get is a blood sample, right, or a tissue sample, and you run a DNA code on test on it, you'll know whether it came from a man or a woman without ever seeing the individual. No, exactly. There is only male and female That's genes. Right. That's it. So... so it just got out of hand. It absolutely got out of hand, and it's just I had so I had to post it. But the one I'm really interested in, okay. Now this is Orwellian, and it's chilling because first of all, when you say Sweden, you think of hockey teams, and you think of um, um, Matt Sundin. You know, you, you think of um, uh, skiing and all these kinds of things. You don't think. Well, actually, maybe you do think of socialist utopias. But here's a story that you says... You know that they don't exist, though, right? There's no, such, there's no such thing, right? Well, it depends on what you mean by utopia. If you want total control of the population, this is a socialist utopia. Okay. If you are in the government's... In Sw this story comes to us from Sweden. Uh, if you are in the government's... Check if you are in the government's view... This is a translation, so it's not perfect. Check if you are in the government's view, the register of people who are deemed to engage in gear, threat, hatred, incitement against migrants, women, and LGD people. News Today has developed a flexible search for uh, search function based on database Swedish Institute Commission established. Oh, that's a rough translation. Anyway, what they're trying to say is the Swedish government has put together a, pub, a, a, a registry for people who engage in what's called wrong think. If you don't have the right attitude about immigration, about different kinds of lifestyles, 
about just this whole progressive attitude, you go on this registry, and there will be consequences. Let me see if I can find a better translation. On Monday, um, News Today reported the government agency, the government agency Swedish Institute uh, commissioned was commissioned to establish a list of people who can be considered to express the false expressions of opinion on Twitter. We now have access to that agency's own database dated on the 10th of May this year and converted into a searchable format. Earlier on Tuesday evening, circulated another database on the Internet that appeared to, to sit well with Twitter users. Say they use the word sue, but I don't think they... This is not a very good translation, so I apologize for that. Um, anyway, the long story, long story is if you're on this registry, you're on the government's radar, and you better be careful because you're engaged in wrong think. Now that's, I'm sorry, that's chilling. We have that here. We are, we are, we may not be quite to that degree, but we are already there because we're already past. Is our Supreme Court is the one that I remember reading this uh, sometime back, so I'm doing it from memory. But they, there was a ruling or a quote from one of the Supreme Justices in Canada that said that even uh, if you were to say criticize, you know, a, man, a grown man shouldn't be going into a, a woman's change room. Um, that's wrong, and especially if you use the Bible to justify it, let alone say it's wrong, uh, you are guilty of hate crime. That is becoming hate. It gets labeled as hate crime speech. Right. So that's what they're doing is that anything that they disagree with is getting labeled as hate speech. And then, of course, you're, this, this list business is going to happen here. And, then, you know, the, the tragic part about that is that it, it, you, you have— so many people don't understand the problem with this. They're so caught up in the um, the kind of ideology where they don't want to offend anybody, and if anybody has an opinion different than theirs, then they're offended. It's 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 the social justice warrior has gone mad. I mean, let's face it. If you the whole point of having. Uh, an open and honest society is the ability to debate. It's like a university, you know, for everybody. Where, excuse me, you can debate and talk about other ideas. And if somebody gets offended by it, as long as you're not being intentionally provocative or offensive, okay, if you're just stating your opinion, if somebody else gets offended by that, that's not your problem, that's theirs. You know, one of the ways that I'm learning to do and I'm finding it effective is sort of that I guess you'd call it the Socratic method of turning it around, asking questions, putting, like, why would it be considered a safe thing for a man to be in a room alone with young girls, for example, in a, in a, in a compromised situation like being undressed or using a washroom? Um, you cannot, what, what about, you know, if a predator, you, you know, decides to hide himself? Are the people that are for the transgender business, uh, what do they say about the people who are going to be hurt by this? Well, you know, like you, we need to learn how to turn these issues around on us instead of, uh, they're always going to call us names. They've been calling us names. They spat on Jesus and hung him on a cross. They, this goes on for all of humanity. Yeah, there's nothing so, new. That's no, sure. no, exactly. So, I mean, we got to grow thick skins, but I mean, I think we also need to learn how to turn it around. And, you know, something I've been thinking about a little bit, I I watch the same insanity that goes on in the left, the people wearing the vagina hats, the nude marches, all the rest of it, pot day, and you name it. 
yeah, I, I understand why we get frustrated and tired with it. And, and we get a little bit dismissive of these people. But one thing is for sure, many of these young people are caught up, you know, they're very emotion driven. They're not, they don't have a lot of world experience. They don't have a lot of, uh, well, we know they've been mistaught intentionally, indoctrinated with a lot of their ideas. As far as they know, they're standing up against Nazis. They literally think we are the Nazis. They don't know they're on the other side. Do yourself but, have some fun one time. Next time you get in, into a conversation with some of these people, ask them uh, or tell them that uh, Nazism is a creature of the left. Well, tell and me. Watch them lose their minds. No, you know, I wound up uh, during the campaign, someone came to my house, and I guess the woman's husband was a political prof uh, at one of the universities here, political science right. prof. And they both got into an argument with me that the Nazis were not socialists. And I'm thinking, well, no wonder you did. Like, but see, that's the thing. So you, what I'm saying is, is you've got a lot of people who are well-meaning, but caught up in something they don't understand. They don't realize. And if you maybe turn it around or start asking them questions, you might be able to draw some of these people out. People need to remember that Ronald Reagan was a radical leftist at one point. Hard to believe, but he was. Calvin Coolidge was into some of the progressive things before he totally abandoned that. Um, there's other examples I can give, but the thing is uh, that Dave Rubin is another one I've been starting to really follow. He had a gr I watched uh, before the show. I watched uh, his interview with uh, uh, Peterson. Uh, the professor. Yeah. Uh, it was a brilliant thing. Um, but Dave Rubin, who was always, you know, this is a gay man. He believes in certain, you know, the what we would deem as social left. But yet he is also beginning to realize that the left doesn't embrace the kind of liberty he thought it did. And he's starting to realize. He even did that video uh, on PragerU, uh, why yeah. the progressive left me. So, I mean... There's somebody who just is seeking truth, seeking... He wants respect. He wants to be left alone. He doesn't want people telling him how to live, and he doesn't want to tell other people how to live. He doesn't want all that bullying, tyranny kind of thing. So by engaging people like that, you, uh, yeah, we're not going to have exactly agreement on everything, but, you know, I think a lot of these young people are getting swept up in movements they don't understand. One thing I was telling you earlier was uh, my, my online church had uh, Senator Ted Cruz's dad, Raphael Cruz, come and speak to the church. He's, a, he's an actual minister. Uh, but he came to our church, and he spoke, and he gave his testimony. And when he was growing up in Cuba, he got swept up in the liberty movement to protest against uh, the revolution against the evil dictator. Little to his knowledge, he was helping institute a brand-new evil dictator. He, he was fighting with Castro and Che. And he didn't, you know, again, 19 and you're emotional and you're just in the fight and the enemy of my enemy is my friend, that kind of mindset, right? right. And they're not, there's no <laughs> distinction as to what's he really about once you get him in there. And that, you know, again, that's sort of the difference between, say, the American Revolution and a French Revolution. It's what are you fighting for or are you just fighting and against? Yeah, because that's why so many those kinds of revolutions turn into another tyrant. You've just replaced one for another. Yeah. And a lot of people in the States are starting to find out, you know, I, people were worried Trump was going to be a bully. Turning out he's not even implementing a lot of his policies. It's not a cheap shot at Trump or anything. I'm just pointing out that many of the people who thought he was going to start getting things done, and then it's not happening. So they weren't looking deep enough. People, 
people brought up that, hey, he's not really a conservative. I don't know that he's going to be conservative when he gets there. No, no, you guys are just naysayers. Let's get him in there and you watch him go. Well, he's in there and we're watching nothing. So, you know. I want to shift gears a little bit, but along similar lines. They're, they've announced the winner of the competition for the new uh, monument to the victims of communism. And I think that's a great thing. Like, believe me, we need a monument to remind us of just how awful and horrible uh, communism is. But I wonder how many people understand the history. Like, if you were to walk down Wellington Street. Most people don't. Well, that was my point. Hmm. You, and stop 100 people. No, they think Nazis are the... They, how many times do people think Nazis killed the most people? They're awful. I mean, don't, they, they, what they did, rounding people up and the final solution, all that, that's brutal stuff. Brutal stuff. But they killed a fraction, a fraction of the people. Well, under, under communism slash socialism, there's been 100 million people die in the 20th century. Minimum. But the point I'm making is there's a real hole in the education system because many of the people who are teaching, certainly in the higher circles of education, happen to embrace that stuff. And they don't want to cast too negative a light on it, but they, there's too much history out there. You can't erase it all. So rather than that, they just don't teach it. So this monument, and I, I don't know whether I like it or not. There's one picture about it in the, in the uh, uh, paper today that I'm looking at. Maybe it's a good, maybe it's a, a decent um, uh, you know, a good monument. I don't know. Uh, I I do. Uh, I'm kind of satisfied. I wanted it on the Supreme Court grounds. I'll tell you right up front. I want it as a daily reminder to pe to people going into our most sacred hall of justice that this is uh, an abomination we can never allow to take root in Canada. Um, but it already has. Well, in a lot of ways, it has. I agree. No, really, but really I'm has. saying that that would be the perfect place for it. I didn't win that argument, so they picked a, a place that isn't all that bad either. Anyway, the point is, if you stop the 100 people and ask them, uh, and ask, ask them who Karl Marx was, who was Joseph Stalin, who was Mao? Oh, I know. They don't know nothing. How, how many of them would say, well, they were communist dictators that butchered millions of people? I was watching, uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a sucker for old movies. I was watching, I don't remember, if it, it might have been Flashdance or something, you know, and I'm watching the behind the scenes, you know, and I think it was, um, I think that's Bruckheimer. I don't want to get the um, name wrong, whichever, is a producer, it doesn't yeah, matter yeah. the guy's name, because I don't want to start throwing wrong names. But anyway, so I'm sitting there watching this, and my jaw drops. He's got gigantic pictures, posters, of Mao all over the place. I remember watching an interview with, um, remember um, Obama's first spokesman, that uh, Gibb, I think was his last name, uh, uh, anyways, watched an interview with him in his home. He's got communist posters, propaganda posters, and Mao posters all over the guy's kitchen and living room. This is where they're doing the interview. And I'm looking in the background going, oh, my goodness, look what he's got all of course, nobody's paying any attention to that, and it's a fluff piece, right? That's what it was. But I knew what those, I knew what those posters were. I knew what they said. I was watching uh, the old show Chips. Remember Chips? I do. In uh, Poncha's trailer, I'm, I'm watching this, and I'm, I see this poster for the NRA. We're not talking the National Rifle Association. We're talking the National Recovery Act. This was basically the communist uh, version, or this was under FDR, and this was essentially like a socialist communist. You, If you didn't uh, belong, if you didn't have this label in your window, you weren't even allowed to do business. If you watch some of the old films that were done in the 30s, especially Little Rascals, you'll see that symbol 
before or at the end of that the picture. Back to, that actually goes back to uh, Woodrow Wilson with the Blue Eagle. Oh, yeah, uh, no, that's what it is. Yes, the, it's the Blue Eagle. Okay. Yeah, that's what it is. And But all these things. See, I've been educating myself of what these symbols are and what came from that. I spot them. A lot of people, it's right in front of their face. Who even realizes that's Mao? You're watching Flashdance. Who gives a crap about Mao? You're not even thinking about that. But there it was. So, like, that makes me think, well, wait a minute. Who the heck hangs up? You wouldn't hang Hitler on your wall. You wouldn't hang, uh, I don't know, uh, Jack the Ripper on your wall. you got to be kidding me with that. He's hanging Mao. He's the biggest mass murderer on, that we know of in this planet's history. You're going to hang that guy on your wall? Why? How is that art? Yeah. It, look, it, it, there are certain contexts I could see where you, you would have a po- portrait, but it would be in a museum in the right context. So you understand that this guy is not being elevated. He's being identified. As a matter of fact, that's I, different. I remember uh, the Christmas, the first Christmas Obama's in the White House, there was a Mao Christmas ball on... The Christmas tree. And I think it was the, uh, Dunn was her last name. She was one of the people in the inner circle of Obama. Right. Anita Dunn, I think, is her name. And her, she was on giving a speech. She said her two uh, heroes were Mother Teresa and Mao Zedong. How do you make that I, I know, I know. Well, because she's trying to appeal. This is like what we were just talking about with Brown, you know, trying to, I want to get a few of the, the uh, Christians in there because it's a Christian school probably. But then, you know, then she saw, I guess it's a way of softening Mao, just in case somebody actually knows who Mao is. I, and she's trying to sound very, uh, oh, informed. six million and, people dead, you don't soften the guy. No, I know. But people really don't know a thing about Mao. So that's why I thought this article was interesting, because it's great to have this arc of memory, uh, <clears throat> is what they're calling it, I guess. And so, that, But do people really understand? Like, most people have some idea of what not, they, at least they think they do, know what Nazism is. You know, you could make the same case about Shintoism, the religion of the Japanese before World War II that we ended, uh, put an end to Shintoism, we banned it, we outlawed it. Um, same thing with Nazism in, in Germany and places like that. You know, people understood the, how evil those were. Uh, but communism, for some reason, seems to have escaped that. And well, I think part of the reason is... Cleansed, because part of it... Well, you go ahead. It, well, part of it is because they were on our side yeah, in World War II. I was just about II. to say that. Yeah. And Uncle it, Joe. Uncle, Yeah, everybody called him Uncle Joe. And you had guys like Walter Durante playing the, the useful idiot going over and promoting communism as this great, wonderful utopia. There's stories about him being led from town to town where there's banquets of food, just food overflowing all over the place. And as soon as he leaves town, they pack all the food up, have it leave the starving people behind, and truck it off ahead of him to the next town. Well, now think about it. You're on the left, and your ideology is essentially Marx and Hitler and... and uh, um Hegel and it's control and and so who are, who are your heroes who are the who are the people who've put that into play Hitler oh boy well we don't want to mention him oh Stalin oh, we don't want to mention him well, Lenin oh, better not mention we'll him we'll talk a little bit about where it's playing out right now when we get back from this we're right back with more on the Nick at Night show.
17 years I've been taking my cars to Irwin's Automotion. 17 years ago, Irwin was renting space on the corner of Bank and Heron. His encyclopedic knowledge of all things mechanical and his no-bull honesty has resulted in his second move. He now operates a huge facility on Cleopatra, eight bays and an expert staff that operate all in the same wavelength. Honesty, integrity, try to save the customers some money and headaches, but fix it right the first time. Irwin's Automotion, 34, Cleopatra. Tell them Council sent you. That'll make them smile. All right, welcome back. My guest in studio is Mike Shelby. He'll be with me for the next half hour or so. And we're talking about just, we're just basically uh, sitting around the, I, I love to be sitting around the fire, uh, <laughs> chomping on some freshly caught fish, but uh, that's not going to happen tonight. Anyway, if you want to join us or if you have any comments on anything you heard in the first hour, you can call 343-700-4390. You can also call 844-562-4766. You can send me a note at nick at night at latenightcouncil.com. Or you can even send me a message over on Facebook because guess what? I'm multitasking. I can keep track of two things at once. And then I move on to the other two. And between that, I... <laughs> this show's way too much fun. All right. Anyway, um, one of the things we were talking about was this whole idea to this new communist monument that the uh, Canadian government under Harper decided to um, put up to remind people of the horrors of communism and how many people really have no idea how horrible it was. And I was watching a piece by one of my favorite commentators is Tucker Carlson because he just, he, he, he doesn't, he's not mean. He's not, you know, he doesn't yell at people. He doesn't bounce up and down like a ping pong ball. He just asks questions. It becomes very obvious very quickly whether or not these people know what they're talking about. And he had this young kid on uh, you can find it on YouTube, by the way. Just Google Tucker Carlson and find the youngest guest he's got, and that's the kid I'm talking about. And they were talking about the latest collapse of socialism, which is unfolding before our very eyes right now in Venezuela. So the, he's going. He's talking to the kid, and he says, "Well, how do you know it works? How do you? How do you? You know? Well, the kid said, "Well, we all know it needs tweaking. Tweaking. There's no toilet paper in in a lot of the country." There are riots in the streets. The only people who have guns are the government and the army. Was, was the guy from Venezuela or is no, he American? No, he's just yeah, an American again. student. Yeah, right. So he's he not never, even living it. He's never left the county, never mind the country, never mind gone to Venezuela. And Ven Tucker made a good point. He says, when I was your age, Venezuela was a modern country moving towards first world status, wealthy, and they had capitalism, they had people who were prosperous, you impose socialism under Che Guevara, or not Che Guevara, uh, Hugo Chavez, and in 10 years he destroys the place, absolutely destroys it, and you're sitting here saying it needs to be tweaked? So this is what happens when people don't understand uh, the long-term consequences of really bad policies because Venezuela is falling apart. It seems there's people starving to death down there. When you were in school, Nick, did you remember learning um, Animal Farm? 
I had to read it. Yeah. We I I still when I was in school I did it. Wasn't that far behind you. I don't think they learn that anymore. Um and and I mean Animal Farm very very it's such a brilliant book because it seduces you into the arguments the way everybody gets sucked into it. Mm-hmm. And no matter what the intent, no matter who runs it, it goes the same way. And that kind of instills a moral lesson on you that you remember. But so many people are not taught that. You know what kids are taught nowadays? And this isn't just in the States. The Tides Foundation brought this into Canada, too. I can't, I don't know exactly what schools, but I know it's here. This story of stuff. Have you ever heard of that? Uh-huh. Well, you know, it's the, brutal. Well, one of the great lines, probably the best line in that whole book, Animal Farm, mm-hmm. is when they're, they have these rules painted on the barn wall, the pigs paint the and every once in a while, they'll wake up and the rules don't look quite the same. There's not as many, and they're different. And finally, one of the pigs is up painting and he falls. And everybody rushes over to see what you know what's going on. And what the pig has just finished painting is, all of us are equal, but some are more equal than others. That's the best line in the book because it underlines everything that's wrong with socialism. Absolutely. And one of the things, that one of the lies or one of the myths that's exposed in that book is... Every time they think they've got the so-called perfect system, they got to come up with a new rule because there's a new problem. They can never quite get to it. Um, and that's why it becomes burdened, overburdened with so many rules and regulations. And then eventually, the same thing, you know, when you read Karl Marx and when you read um, uh, various utopians, him, by the way. well, when you read his actual writings and Woodrow Wilson, same thing. They're very big on the people and democracy, right? They see the, the they want to use that a little bit to get their power, but then they kind of notice something. You can't just go letting everybody decide because they might decide wrong. So know, even yeah. they start to it always becomes a two-tiered system where you have the rulers and the servants if you will. You're great on watch, yeah. It's just inevitable, and and anybody that advances those systems, it's in there in you every. Know, here's here's an interesting question: if if you were teaching a course on history, or setting the agenda for what's required reading for, let's say anybody beyond grade eight, let's say high school, by grade ten you have to have four books read. What would you what would you suggest? Animal Farm is definitely one of them. Absolutely, I think. Uh, Hmm, that's a good that's a good question. I'll tell you one that I really enjoy, and it's more of a movie. And it was actually, I think, it was Canadian made. Believe it, I can't. It blows my mind. It's got Sean Astin in it. Um, oh, jeez, I can't remember the Michael J. Fox's wife, uh, Pollard. I can't forget her name. I'm so bad with names. What's the name of the movie? Uh, Harrison Bergeron, and it was actually written by. Um, oh, jeez, I've forgotten his name too. It was written by somebody who was mocking those of us who were against egalitarianism. And so it's written over the top, right? But it actually makes our points exactly. When you try to implement this over-the-top egalitarian utopia, what you find out is there's no way to make everybody all even. So the only thing you can do is handicap those that achieve by severe amounts. You can't really bring up people who are less intelligent. The whole thing is an out-of-control tyranny. And, of course, the people that run it have all the privileges in the world, and and they just make their own rules for their way, and they keep everybody dumbed down. A brilliant example of of, uh, along that line where you have leadership that doesn't fit the mold. Christopher Plummer. 
Christopher Plummer and uh, Sean Astin are the main stars of this movie. And it was made in Canada. It's like a little indie Never film. but heard of it. It is brilliant. It is so good. It was one of those ones that was on TMN back when I had that. Um, but people ought to find this movie however they find it. It is brilliant. Because for me, it would be uh, Animal Farm. Yep. Uh, George Orwell's 1984. Yeah, see, this I think even surpassed it. Because I've... 1984 was okay for me. I didn't care for it that much, but I thought Harrison Bergeron. You know, you know so no, I'm going to take that Same back. Idea. You know which one I think is a better movie than 1984? It's, it's a more recent film, first of all. It stars Angela, uh, Wesley Snipes and Sylvester Stallone. And they're living in a world uh, where uh, the cops don't have guns, they have uh, stun sticks. Uh, there's no violence, everything's controlled by the state, but underneath it all, there's people living in the sewers. I forget the name of it. Um, oh, I know which one you're thinking of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, um, oh yeah, Demolition Man. Demolition Man. Demolition That's Man. it. That you know what? It's a in a lot of ways is a really corny, stupid movie, but yeah, it does the... make some excellent points. So that would be uh, as far as movies are concerned. But getting back to books, I would have them read a series of books, uh, just be- because I think our own history is vitally important. Wolf and Montcalm. Or Montcalm and Wolf, I think it's an older book written in 1889, but it's a, it's one of the best studies of early Canadian history that I can think of. And the other one is, um, oh, come on, I had on tip my tongue. Uh, oh yeah, it's called The Guns, and it's about our experiences during World War II. Oh, Vimy Ridge, I'd have to throw that in there too with Pierre Burton. But The Guns, there's three, there's three to the series. One is called Where the Hell Are the Guns? The Guns of Normandy, The Guns of Victory, because it teaches the. Uh, World War II history from a Canadian perspective and is brilliant and it should be in every high school in the country. I know it's going to sound a little weird, but the Bible. And the reason I say that, as somebody who's a more... No, I know, but we've become... We've made it weird. It's become the book you never talk about or, oh boy, he's going to Bible banger, here we go. But I'm somebody who came to the Bible. I was studying the American... Like I started with the American experience particularly because I knew they debated all of these other ideas at the same time. So I knew I was going to get to the heart of matters and hear, well, why don't you do it this way? Why shouldn't we do that? What's wrong with that? Because I had those same questions. They answered all those. They went through all that. So I thought that was a good place to start. And then as I started exploring the people that influenced them and how they thought, I knew the Bible was a major part of that. So I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe I should read this. I, I wasn't a terribly religious guy. I think I believed in God, but, you know, kind of like most people, uh, you know, I'd do Christmas and that's it. So I'm reading the Bible, and I've already sort of experienced John Locke and, and Aristotle, and I'm looking at, the, when you, you know, when you share little quotes from them, and everyone goes, holy cow, that's like it was written for today. When was that written? 350 B.C. Whoa, that's amazing. Well, as I'm reading the Bible, as I go through it, more and more of the similarities to modern day society and the way it it just nails human behavior it nails human nature in such a way yeah okay i understand not everybody is you know for the book or whatever but i'll tell you it's hard to deny the similarities in how societies play out and the way tyrannies form and the way society goes off the rails it's it's literally parallel to everything we're doing right now so that just that when I read that and I know that that is happening now because I can see it in society, and then you look at the history and, oh, wow, look at that. It's every time. It's the pattern. Well, it's funny that you mentioned human nature and, and that kind of thing. 
and there's a story in Gatineau talk about a disordered and dysfunctional world. Um, this is based on the flood that the Gatineau experienced, a lot of people experienced. And I still say this was an artificial flood that did not need to happen because the watershed was not managed properly, but that's a conversation for another day. Anyway, um, the heading, the, the title out of the Ottawa Citizen is uh, Some Gatineau Flood Victims Face New Obstacles, Heritage Site Rules. Now, the question becomes, that uh, when I posted this, I said, why is it, since when did the buildings people live in become more important than the people who live in the buildings? I mean, you're not talking about some ancient Egyptian artifact here. You're not talking about Buddhas carved in stone that have been there for 1,500 years. You're talking about wartime housing in, in Gatineau. They've been designated heritage. And these are simple homes. It's not, like I said, we're not talking about, uh, you know, some, some ancient uh, fortress built, you know, 300 years ago during the French and British wars here in North America. It's a, it's, you look at the street and their homes that in any other setting would have been bulldozed and new homes put up. There's nothing fancy, nothing special about them. But when they, they designated these heritage sites, I'm looking at this one home and it's got, you know, a door and a bunch of windows in the front porch, a couple of windows upstairs and a, and a little window in the attic. To replace those, they have to be exactly the same windows that go in that are there now. So if there's a sash window, you have to have sash windows that go back in. If that's an old wooden door, guess what you got to put back in there? And the process to get it done See, is why is anybody why is this anybody's business? The guy who owns that house, right? I, look, you're uh, you're you and I, but let's for the sake of this discussion, okay, suspend the property rights point of view. Why would the government ever, especially after these people have just had the, you know, for the next two years they're going to be dealing with this. It's going to take them, in some cases, up to a year to get permission to rebuild their own homes. Why doesn't the government talk about lack of common sense? Why does the government not say, you know what, screw the heritage, uh, heritage um, designation. These people are what matters, not the buildings they live in. If we can save a heritage building that's signif really significant to our heritage, all right, we'll buy it from the owner and we'll set it up as a museum or whatever. Okay? Now, I'm fine with that. This is utter nonsense. You know what I just you know what I just thought of? You posted an article Bob had shared with you. Oh yes. And uh talking from and it was describing the bureaucratic despotism or the or the administrative state. Yes. And and in many ways that's what this is in some ways because even the politicians are become powerless. They set up these quasi-government organizations and then set them loose. And then they can't even control them either. They become uh, extra government. Like, it's uh, they're outside of it's. One of the things I want to do, and I haven't, I haven't approached him on it, but I would love to have Bob in as a guest. As a guest. Mm -hmm. he, is, he really is a very insightful man. He's, uh, he's very, um, you know, he, he really understands uh, the way government works, the way policy works, and can shed a, a tremendous amount of light on the, 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 what the government does right and what it does wrong. And the list of wrong is far longer than the list of right. Well, that, that article that he shared was brilliant. I mean, it's long, but, but you can well just see the, the bureaucratic nightmare of trying to move and get anything done. See, this, this goes back to this idea of, of this new uh, party. To be able to take a hacksaw or a buzzsaw or a chainsaw to the size of government, I mean, you are going to think you're slaughtering chickens or kittens when it's going on. 
because the press and the you know the left wing is going to have a cow. Oh, sure they will. But ask yourself, how many departments do we need? And even if we keep the same departments, how many people do we have to employ? Like if you look at the health department, okay, or the Ministry of Health, how many senior executives making two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year do we need? Yep. You know, couldn't we cut that number in half? Well, this is why I bring up people like Coolidge. It's not, it's not about being American or anything. It's just about seeing it actually put to action. And the results were not all kinds of people unemployed. There was All those people that had government jobs and government positions, they all got new jobs, and they got better-paying jobs. And they could afford more things than they could afford when they were on the government dole because more things were available. The whole economy exploded. People understand that, and you can point them to a very real, historic example of cutting and getting government out of the way. Well, here's what's the latest in the news, <clears throat> and I didn't post a story on it because I've been over this a thousand times, is this idea of minimum wage. Mm -hmm. The Kathleen Wynne wants to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. So for the sake of discussion, you have somebody that could be an elderly person who is trying to supplement their CPP, um, or you have somebody who's stepping into the workforce and needs to have something on their resume so they can go get a better job. Or you have a business that has a need but can't afford well, to fill where, the need. Here's where I'm going. Okay. So let's say they're working in a coffee shop and you have a pot of coffee, holds 12 cups, right? The most you can reasonably charge for a coffee at a coffee shop is what, two and a quarter? And that's probably pushing it. So let's call it two bucks. So you got $24 in a coffee pot. You're going to pay somebody $15 an hour to pour $24 worth of coffee. That's going to cost you because that's what you get out of it, but that's not what you have to put into it. Let's say the cost to make that pot of coffee is even, even maybe it's, maybe it's five bucks. You know, nobody ever asked the question, why are we even involved in the transaction in the first place? Again, if you're a business and I'm somebody who needs work, I need to put food on. My... Nick, Nick, I, I, I'm really struggling this week, uh, this month. Uh, I, I'm not going to make my bills and I got babies at home. You know, what could, is there anything you could throw me? I don't, I'm not looking for a handout. Is there any jobs I could do? And you say, you know what? I need that back room swept out. It, it, I've been meaning to do it and I can't. Why are they involved in this transaction? And the other thing that goes with this that nobody ever asks, and it's obvious why these stupid minimum wages, because the union contracts are all based on whatever the minimum wage is. This is a total con game. This is how they, because no, the public will not support their negotiating for bigger raises, but as soon as minimum wage goes up, all their rates are based off minimum wage. That's the big dirty lie that nobody ever tells. But the bottom line is, why are we interfering in people, letting people work for themselves and, and make money? The reason they get away with it is because I think there's a tremendous lack of economic understanding. Well, nobody ever asked those questions here. Let's be honest. Nobody on the conservative true, side even true, true. puts it in because they just want to... They want to appeal. Oh, yeah, well, I'll make it $25 an hour. Oh, yeah, well, I'll make it a million dollars an hour. It becomes like a bidding war of insanity. And, and meantime, we're just bankrupting ourselves. But my, my point was it gets to a point where it, it, it's a business killer. It's, it, it generates massive unemployment because you, there's only so much money in that coffee pot. <laughs> you if, know, and if, if you come out of it and your profit on that $24 coffee pot is 15 bucks. That means the very, and it depends how busy the shop is on any given day, 
Okay, so you have to pour at least a pot of coffee an hour. Now, in some stores, that's not a problem. You can do it. But if you're a little diner, okay, and there's nothing wrong with the coffee that's been sitting there for an hour, you know, staying warm. Now, three or four hours, that's different. Then they start to give you don't need to go there. But the bottom line is you have to have enough revenue. You, you have to get more out of that individual they than the care. cost of their employment. But they don't care. It's all about it's all about getting elected or telling making and by the way, it is nefarious. Many people who are behind a lot of these policies, they know what they're doing. And it's making people hopelessly dependent on them, so that if you in each election cycle you're gonna you're gonna be re put well, in. Speaking of election cycles, Kathleen Wynne comes out. She's pretending to be the savior for hydro, right? Oh, we're you're giving the one you 25%. who's bankrupted us. With yeah, hydro. she first of all she drove it up by 150 percent. Now she's going to give us 25 percent off. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. But a lot of people go, "Wow, I get 25 percent back on my hydro bill." And they, they're coming out with these self-congratulatory ads, you know, which are nothing but campaigns paid for by the public dime, which is outrageous on its face. And the conservatives are right on that, that they that that needs to end. You know, you open up your hydro bill and half of it's promotional material for the Liberal Party of Ontario. Yeah. OK, just just again, no rules on government. Yeah, exactly. So but between the crushing weight of, of the cost of hydro and now this. The next double whammy is going to be the uh, the cost of labor. That's going to put thousands of people out of work. When's the last time anybody ever brought up? Do you know? I listened to a station in uh, South Carolina. They were complaining about dollar seventy five a gallon gas. Yeah, I'll trade them in a, in a heartbeat. But but they again they have no concept of what we're paying, and we have no concept of what they're paying. We're so lost in the the extreme expense that we've lost track of what's reasonable and if people saw that you why is a car driving on such high gas what is that about why are we doing that why are we making life so darn difficult for everybody to afford well there's clearly an agenda at work like you just sure. got to walk down laurier and look how difficult it'll be to drive a car down laurier um the mess they've made down there i mean i was uh, dropping a friend off at the bus our working our workaway student uh her time amongst us is now over, and she's moved on. She's on her way to Iceland. Great gal. We really enjoyed having her. But uh, when we were dropping her off at the bus stop, um, she was taking a bus over to Gatineau. Uh, I looked at the mess that downtown Ottawa is, and this is our 150th anniversary. So when I say the city can't run a wheelbarrow, uh, generally speaking, I'm right. I thought they did a really good job at the flood, but that's the exception, not the rule. So anyway, you know, all I, that to say, I just wanted to go back to that when we were talking about the you know government getting in because one of the things they always this is what the minimum wage is about. They're protecting you, right? They're protecting you from the evil business. Let me let me just play devil's advocate. Let's just play this out a little bit. Okay, so I'm a big millionaire government or, or big millionaire business, and I want to hire somebody, and I don't want to pay them hardly anything, and you're going to have to work crazy hours, and I'm never going to let you go home and see your kids, and, you know, you're going to make a nickel a week. Um, who's who, who wants to come and get that job? I'm going to be sitting by myself. I'm going to be doing Nobody's the job myself. Exactly. exactly. So what's with the... Oh, we got to protect people. What what is protect? If I want to put food on my table and I agree to the wage you're offering me for the job you're offering me, we've agreed that that's a fair price and I want to do it so that I don't have to go on the government dole and take so that I can go and put food on my table and I've earned something for myself. Couldn't agree with you more and our time is up.
Thank you to my guests this evening, Craig uh, Delandrio. Now I can't even say it. Craig, (laughs) who is with us in the first hour, and uh, Mike Shelby, who spent the evening with us. Thank you for both being here. I know Craig's not on the phone right now, but with any luck, he's still listening. So thank you, Craig. I appreciate it. Um, That wraps it up for me tonight. I'll be back again next week. In the meantime, we'll be caritas et amor de CBS. Good evening. God bless. Don't let anything disturb your peace. And may you have a fair wind and a following sea. That e'er I had, I spent it in good company, and all the harm I've ever done, alas, it was to none but me, and all I've done for one time. So fill to me the parting glass, good night and joy be to you all. So fill to me the parting glass and drink a health whatever Then gently rise and softly call Good night and joy be to you all Of all the comrades that it I had They're sorry for my going away And all the sweethearts that e'er I had They'd wish me
Yeah.